Welcome to the B2B Category Creators Podcast, hosted by Gil Alouche, founder and CEO of Metadata.io. This podcast is all about sharing the real and sometimes uncomfortable secrets of category creation in the B2B software space. On this week's episode, we have Mike Zanni, CEO of the Predictive Index, the leader in talent optimization, and Allison Havener, VP of Marketing at Trust Radius, the most trusted review site for business technology. Awesome. Happy Friday, everyone. My name is Gil Alush. I'm the founder and CEO of Metadata. This is episode, I think, 18, but I'm not really sure, of Category Creator Podcast. Um, I have with me Mike and Allison. Allison, maybe you can start us off introducing yourself and your company. Hi there. My name is Allison Havner. I'm the VP of Marketing at Trust Radius, which is a B2B software review platform. Awesome. Super brief. <laughs> it is brief. I, I'm Mike Zani, and I like Trust Radius a lot. We, we look at your data all the time, so thank you, Allison. <laughs> I'm the CEO of the Predictive Index, located in Rhode Island, where we have a hurricane uh, warning. My phone just alerted me that uh, we need to prepare. So uh, the Predictive Index uh, is a talent optimization platform, and uh, we took a category strategy, so I'm excited to talk category. Awesome. Beautiful. Well, I'm excited to have you both. Thank you for joining. Um, Let's start off with category creation. So, you know, part of this podcast is to really try to unveil the secrets and, you know, everything there is to learn about category creation from should you create a category? What does it mean to you? What are the tactics to actually create a category and dominate it? And so I'll start off with a simple question. What does category creation mean to you? Um, Alison, you can get us started. So when I think about it, um, it's really answering a need in the market, right? So what was that kind of like paradigm shift that's happening that actually gives you the right to exist? Um, so if you can identify that, um, that's when you create a new technology category. Okay, so identifying like a, a need that was unmet before, is that kind of the summary? Right, exactly. And I think also for category, like if I was gonna put an adjective to it, it's the most difficult. Right. So if you're thinking about how you're going to take your product to market, the hardest thing to do is to, and the most expensive thing to do <laughs> is to create your own category. So when is a good time to create a category? Um, when, when there isn't a category that is sufficient enough for your product and to define it. Right. So when you think about a market category, it's really the context that you're being placed in for your customers. So if you're, you know, for instance, you know, Trust Radius is a review platform, right? That gives us some kind of context or, or, and gives our customers that context. Now, if we wanted to be something completely different and there's nothing in the market that really gives us that context and really helps define who we are, then that's when you, that's when you can really um, start investing in creating a category. But it needs cool. to be partnered with that paradigm shift that's happening in the market. Not just, not just because you decided to. Exactly. I <laughs> What about you? I know you're very passionate about category creation. What do, what do you think about? What's the first thought that comes to mind when talked about category creation? You know, I really think it's, am I muted? No. I, I really no. think it's a, it's a discipline. And I, I talked about it with, with my uh, stepbrother, who was the ad, editor of, of Adweek, you know, back 20 years mm -hmm. ago. And I really think it's like a, a subset of 
really high quality brand work. And when, when you think about it, it, it it's, it's sort of like this discipline where you, you articulate your point of view, you articulate why you do what you do. And you know, so much of the value is just the exercise of you and your company and the surround of your company, you know, really refines what you do. And, you know, it, it really works well when you are in fact different, not just better. But even if, even if you're not truly different, you know, if you're out there and you're struggling to find out how you're different, that, that discipline, that exercise of going through your point of view, like why, why you do what you do and why you do it well, and aligning people on that and really sweating the details about the language and about the, how you talk about it. I, I think it just, it makes you a healthier company. So even if you don't take a category strategy, it's, it's, it's good brand discipline. And I think, you know, you talk to someone, you could go to someone who's been a brand expert at Young, Young and Rubicon for 30 years. And they're like, yeah, we've been doing this for years. They didn't call it category, but they've been doing it. Interesting. And, uh, so you kind of, it's a little bit of underneath the branding exercise, which actually I've, I've heard, I think I talked to um, Chris, the CEO of uh, Sendoso, and um, unlike many others, he went into category creation from day one. He, he, mm -hmm. That was part of his strategy. And he said that the biggest thing that he did is invest heavily in branding, which no one does in the you know, stage A of a, of a startup. So from your point of view, like that is kind of one of the biggest the biggest uh, emphasis of category creation, branding, um, telling a story differently. It is. I mean, going through the, the discipline of brand isn't expensive. It's telling the world about your brand that's expensive. So if, <laughs> if, you're, if you're a startup and you don't have a lot of money, say you're, you're bootstrapping or you're in angel seed financing, I think the discipline of going through category, which is a a, a niche subset of brand is, is going to be really healthy for you. And whether you choose to spend the money or not, or you choose to do some of the activities that you might not have done otherwise or not is, is up to you, but your company will be healthier for it. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing too, around branding um, is if like you could do it in more of an economical way, if you can get your, like one of the things um, when I was at LiveRamp, one of the things that we really focused on when we were taking data onboarding and creating that category is like we had to find the right customers that were going to tell our story. So it's like, how does that, how, like you create that story, that branding story that everything is laddering into, but then you find those kind of like poster children customers that are going to take that story, they're going to adopt it. Right. And then they're the ones that are evangelizing it for you. And I think that that is like a way to do it. That's like not as expensive, right? Like there's other things that need to be coupled with that. But if you can get those like kind of big customers on board and then use them to tell your story, you know, that that's honestly one of the best ways to go about it. Both of you said very interesting things. Uh, and I know intimately the live room story. It's by talking to Oren. <laughs> or, Oren and Travis May uh, are, yeah. are close. So uh, I'm going to go back to that in a second. Mike, you, you said even if you don't have money, uh, you're, poor, you're a poor startup. Uh, going through that exercise, even if you don't, how do you like, you know, like emphasize it or, or, or put the money into actually the, the branding execution, going through that exercise is important. Can you give an example? Like, you know, like many of our listeners are Series A, Series Seed, 
um, CEOs and founders. And you know, they're early on, they think many of them, although it's maybe not, not the right uh, way to go, think about demand gen or, or lead gen as the first thing to invest in. Um, what do you mean specifically as going through a branding exercise or a branding uh, kind of exercise um, as, a, as a means to an end to figure out what you are and what you're not? So we, we have 750 uh, value-added resellers, partners, so that you know, when, you, when you do talent optimization, the software doesn't do everything. We, we have people in the field who do these things. And these partners, some of them have been with us since the 80s. So they've been, they've been practicing talent optimization for years. They didn't call it that. So when we, when we started working on our category, we pulled a lot of our best partners in to help us describe what they do because we consider them in our ecosystem. And these are small companies. They can be you know, single shingle you know, sole proprietors to you know, the biggest might be a you know, 100 person consulting company. But most of them are small businesses, undercapitalized. They don't have a lot of money to spend on marketing. Most of them, even if they try lead gen, it's, it's very rudimentary. So just getting them aligned on how to articulate what we do, it, it was an exercise that I'm like, I've been doing this for years. I didn't know how to fully articulate it. And some of my peers did, did the same thing, but they said it in a different way, just aligning all of these, these little colonies of partners out there they're not spending money, but that alignment exercise that we did with them sort of, you know, they were like, thank you for finally putting a bow on what we've been trying to talk about for years. And, and that was really just, uh, it was a category exercise, but someone could have done it in the eighties as a branding exercise. <laughs> and it was, it was a really healthy thing. And, and they, in the end they said, thank you, you know, for, for really helping them articulate what it is that they do every day. I mean, cracking that 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 definition is, I think, at least for me, I'm a technical founder, more of an engineer than anything, and I think that's one of the hardest things to do to kind of crack that story. I had Andy Raskin here who was talking about the old, what was the old world, the new world, or old game and new game, and it was fascinating. You know, he has this like blueprint of how to talk about these things. Uh, versus like an engineer that usually just dives into the features uh, of a product that no one understands to begin with. Uh, <laughs> well, nobody cares about features, right? They no. care about the solution and the outcome. So I think when you're doing this kind of exercise, that two things is you have to create a framework, right? You, build, you build that framework, you build that narrative, you have to get consensus across the entire company, especially at the C-suite level, you get that consensus and then you evangelize that internally and externally, and you have to tell a consistent story. Otherwise, you know, everybody's singing from different song sheets and you won't ever create that category. Everyone needs to be saying the same thing all the time, right? It's all about consistency and that focus. Let's talk about, I like that. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about Live Run for a second. If I remember <laughs> what, uh, well, I won't get into the conversation with Oren, but maybe the Travis yeah. <laughs> is an easier one. Uh, I remember, I think he told me that he started as an intern and he, there, yeah. there was pretty much like a back and forth trying to figure out what LiveRamp is for years. And it was like nothing, yeah. nothing, 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 nothing. And then 
boom, like a huge growth in, in a few years. Uh, and, then the, and then the acquisition. What was, um, I don't know if you were, you know, if were you, you were there back then. Perfect. So yeah, I, I started story. at LiveRamp in 2013. Um, so I was there kind of during the early days. But what we really did is we honed in on data onboarding. And so when I look back at those kind of early days, what we did and is we found, again, like there was like this shift that was happening for advertising to become much more targeted, much more like efficient with budgets, et cetera. And so when we thought about like our target audience and who we were really going after, it was like B2C marketers, right? Big budgets, big systems of record, right? They would have to have a really big first party audience. Um, and so when we were, when we were data onboarding was, nobody was talking about that. That was not something to use your CRM uh, to actually retard or to go after your, your customers in multiple channels, right? And so that was not being talked about. And so we had to create that entire category. I actually remember like being in a conference room and uh, I was on uh, reporting into our CMO and we were writing the Wikipedia page for data onboarding. Um, so it was like, they, and we had to do it everywhere. And I, I think back on it now, and we also really, really heavily invested in analyst firms, right? So we're like, hey, we got to create this category. We need the analysts behind us. And now that I look at it, now that I'm at Trust Radius, the, the like software review platform was not really around, right? So you had to go this very like old school classical way of like going through the analysts to like help you and help you kind of break into like the enterprise. Um, but now I like we with a lot of our clients at Trust Radius, what we're helping them is we're actually helping them to find that category for them and, and giving them a platform to do that. So there's less barrier to entry for people now. But like it was super expensive to go that route with the analysts, coaching them, teaching them, right, of like of our technology and the use cases. Nice. Okay. So you're saying that for you, you had to spend a lot of money. I mean, creating a Wikipedia page is definitely <laughs> the epitome of category creation. Uh, but the most saying, simple thing you can do. <laughs> yeah, no, it's cool. I, 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 I admire that. I, and we trust radius. I hear you're saying because you have that platform and you have all this data, you help customer, you know, like startups essentially, or, or other, comp mm -hmm. other companies, with that definition, where do you fit? What what is your bucket? Do you do you you know a loaded question? Do you find uh, trust radius to have defined the the the, the customer reviews or uh, you know however you call that that category? Software like, review platform. Software review platform. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for keeping me honest. Do you do you find trust radius to have defined that category or create that category? I think that there's actually like a few players in the space that. Um, are defining the category and we're kind of we're working on like the niche of the categories you have some people that were really early on like the Capteras and G2s and Trust Radius is in there as well um, and then you have like Gartner that made some acquisitions that are doing like the peer insights but they each kind of have like their own like Captera was very like legion it's very pay to play right like you pay to get higher ratings you pay for leads it's like um, so it's a very different model than what we have. G2 is just pure volume, right? It's just like as much volume as you can get. Um, so you can be placed higher on their list. So it's like almost like gamifying it a little bit. Um, and then where I think Trust Radius is really trying to focus is just on the credible quality of the content and really actually positioning ourselves for the buyer. So who are the buyers that are coming to our site? And so we really have built the platform for them versus the vendors on the back end 
right? That are trying to, they're trying to essentially acquire those eyeballs of the buyer. So, you know, I think each of them kind of, each of those review platforms kind of have their own model um, that, that I think kind of creates the category definition. Um, so I think that's something that we're working on right now. It's like, how do we kind of rewrite the definition of what a software review platform is? Now, now, Allison, shoot. No, I, when you were speaking about what, what you do, you reminded me that you, like, it sounds like in Glassdoor mm, yes. for hiring, yes. you are yes. the Glassdoor for software. So you guys should yes. do a podcast together yeah. <laughs> about how they're working on hiring brand, you right. know, you know, your employer brand. And, 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 you know, this is sort of like the software piece of it, but there's a, there's a weird synergy there because you're doing such a similar thing and it's so valuable to the market. Yes. And this is, you know, one of the reasons, um, cause I'm pretty new at trust radio. So I left live ramp about two months ago. And one of the reasons I took the job is because I was just like, so excited of like this idea of like this, ex this neutral area where people can come and exchange information and have that because if you think about it, the cost of buying the wrong software for a company is like, you know, it's very, very expensive. And so where these peers can exchange this information and like, you know, kind of like warts and all, like you want to buy, no software is perfect, but you want to at least know where the gaps are so you can plan for that. Um, and same with Glassdoor, right? Like you want to, like, you, you're going to go to a company, not, not every company is like all, um, you know, rainbows and sunshine, but at least you want to prepare for that. <laughs> so many follow-ups. <laughs> um, let's take a pause. I'm going to pour myself another drink. What are you drinking? I'm drinking uh, Japanese whiskey. Oh, oh, I, I've seen that before. It's delicious. It's really nice. It's almost over. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> cheers. Hope you didn't start it at the front end of these podcasts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I started an hour and a half ago with my first podcast today. Mm. I hope it wasn't a fresh you. bottle then. No, <laughs> no, no, no. It's I'm only like a glass and a half in, so no, I'm good. Okay, good. I can't, <laughs> I can't do too much. I, I told you, I just went to which is a three days uh, company kickoff in H for H two. That that was that was a lot of drinking. Um, <laughs> cool. Well, let's change gears completely. Category creation is very interesting, but it's not everything. Um, let's talk about career for a second. Both of you, it's not your first rodeo. You've been in startups before, ups and downs. If you had to think about your biggest hashtag fail moment, like a, a moment where you were like, you fucked up or you're just like, you just like, you're pissed. You did something that you, you could have avoided. And there was an impact, you know, there was a consequence uh, to it. It doesn't have to be live ramp. Doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be your existing past career. Um, you can go 10, 15 years back. What was that moment that you, you really remember and you try to avoid? I'll, I'll dive in. So, God bless you. The, I, I'm, I'm friends with uh, my old boss now, but for a while it was, it was pretty tough. But I was working at a sailboat manufacturer and I was so upset at my boss that I was chasing him around a boat you know, when you're little kids and you're chasing someone around a table and they're always running at the opposite side, I was planning on kicking the shit out of him. And I just, <laughs> I just couldn't, I just couldn't catch him. And, and the whole manufacturing floor, cause we used to make sailboats was like came out and these are all pretty blue collar manufacturing. And they're like cheering us on. They're like, all right, Mike's going to beat up Joe. 
And like, <laughs> I, I just had a, a, an out of body emotional experience that I, I've certain, like I'm an emotional person. I'm pretty passionate. That's one of my gifts. But when it's out of control on the back of my t-shirt, it could take me out. And I, I've, I haven't done anything that egregious, you know, but I remember my, my, the first time I was a CEO, the board was pushing me on some forecasting issues and that same emotion came up and I was not being a great CEO when I was called on the mat for some forecasting that we missed. And, you know, like the ability over time to, to, to control that demon, you know, find out what that thing is that triggers you and when it comes on so that you can short circuit it because it was definitely not me on my best day when I'm chasing my boss trying to kick his butt <laughs> or fighting with my board. There's just no win there. So for me, it was, you know, controlling something that I, I have, this is an issue I have and making sure it doesn't take you out. I got to pause there for a second. I think what you just yeah. said is very, very insightful. At least I am. I can emphasize with this uh, too much to an extent. I first I want to know what what made you so pissed that you were about to kick this shit out of your <laughs> boss. But I also uh, want to just pause and say this: managing your psyche and uh, managing your emotions and your triggers. You mentioned that. Hell, I don't know how many shrinks I've seen about that. That is very, very <laughs> important. I think that's that's a big deal uh, and something that is overlooked many times because you may survive life and even thrive still having those issues, but, you know, the life that can be without it, you know, when you can control yourself. So there's, uh, this, there's this amazing framework. Uh, this guy, Jim Allen, he's a partner at Bain, and he calls it front of t-shirt, back of t-shirt. So on the front of your t-shirt is everything you've been given a job for your whole life. And your parents <laughs> talk about it. When you hear it, you puff up your chest. You're really proud. But just as clear and just as long of a list is on your back of t-shirt that people can articulate very clearly when you walk away from them and leave because <laughs> they don't want to say it to you. So the, this, this discipline of going on this journey to find out what's on the back of your t-shirt, to ask Allison, what, what does it say back there? <laughs> and, and you have to ask people, you have to you, you know, contort yourself. You have to be really just amazingly self-aware. And you go on this journey because one, don't take away anything from the front because that's awesome. But the front is usually related to the back. So it, it's, it's, it's like if I took away my passion, I would have solved the problem of chasing Joe around the boat, but then I wouldn't get a job, you know? So what you need to do is you need to articulate the front, articulate the back, and then find out on, on the back, what are the triggers? Because you, you live with this for your whole life. Like, I'm about to kill my son. No, I shouldn't kill my son. I should probably <laughs> rethink that decision. So, and it's, it's this journey. So whenever I'm coaching people, it's, it's like, hey, what's on the front? What's on the back? Let's celebrate them all. And let's, let's identify when and how and control the trigger. Because if you can do that, you can really be you on your best day more often because you just don't get taken out by your dark side. Very nice. We, we call it, uh, at least I call it shit to value ratio, uh, but it's really pretty much like exactly the same, the same concept. I still want to know, like, what, what made you so pissed at your boss? Uh, it, was, it, was, it was an early job. So I was trailering boats and Joe hooked up the trailer and he didn't 
didn't fasten it correctly. So I'm driving down the highway and this massive 12 boat trailer came off the van and spun oh me God. off the road and I was died. And I, oh I just- Oh my God. <laughs> and I was, and it, honestly, it's my fault. You should never drive a trailer without checking all of your equipment yourself. I thought yeah. he did it. Yeah. So my bad, sorry, Joe, but I was gonna <laughs> kick his ass. Wow, <laughs> that is wild. Sorry, sorry, it was early <laughs> career, early career. I uh, love that story. Allison, what about you? I uh, I love the self-awareness. I think, you know, early in my career, I was, I would say it's passion, right? There was a lot of door slamming, a lot of leaving conference rooms, really upset. Um, but I had a really good relationship with my old boss, Rebecca Stone. She's the CMO at Meraki now. And we worked at Libram together for like seven years. And so we had a really great relationship. Um but there, and we, but we had very similar personalities. So we were big personalities, wanted to get our way. Um, and there was a few times. So uh, my probably my biggest like blunder, I would say, is uh, like very very early in my career, I was um, at a Marketo conference, you know, and I thought I was in our testing um, environment, and I like set up this random email, did all this stuff, whatever couple and like randomly scheduled it to be sent out on like this random date. So I was at one of our events in Dallas and my phone just like all of a sudden all these like that, like all the bounced emails came back to my, um, my email address. And so I was like, Oh, weird. What like marketing email went out today. And as I'm thinking that my boss is calling me and she's like, what did you do? What did you do? And I was like, what are you talking about? So we dig into Marquette. I found out this like you know, email template thing that I made went out to our entire database. And so like, it's like, this is like the most classic thing that like everybody has to do, I feel like in their career. But I was devastated. I remember I was like at a restaurant and I just like, I thought I was going to collapse to the ground. And Travis May was actually the CEO at the time. And uh, everybody was just like, so supportive. They're like, hey, these things happen. And we like responded to it. Travis like wrote the whole company and was like, Hey, we move fast. Mistakes are happening. So I felt very, very supported. But also my boss was like, Hey, like, look, like these, these things happen. You are now officially banned from Marketo. (laughs) I was like, yeah, probably I should not be in there. (laughs) And, um, and so I think like, you know, one of the things I learned in my career is you have to kind of build those relationships and really invest in those relationships because mistakes are going to happen. Things don't work out. But at the end of the day, if you have those relationships to fall back on, it's like, okay, great. This was a learning experience. How are we going to take those learnings and then kind of move forward? Um, and I think that was one thing that I really learned um, at LiveRamp. And we were just like such a close group of people that had been there very early on. And as the company started to grow, I really, really used those relationships to kind of grow my career and, and really push the business forward. Super cool. I do think everyone in marketing has gone oh, yeah. through this. How many people got yes. your, your email? Oh gosh, our database is probably like 60,000 people. Okay, it's really not that bad. It's not that bad. It was more of like, the, I think the more that I was just like, I was obviously like mortified. But the other thing too is like, we're like a big data business, right? And so everyone thought we were like, people were thinking we were hacked and like all, you know, all kinds of stuff. So I was like, that I think was probably the worst part of it. But then you had people on the sales team that customers or like prospects and all these people were writing them back like hey uh just got this weird email 
And so they're like, look, I, I got people to respond to me that hadn't responded to me in like months. And I was like, well, at least some meetings and sales meetings came out of it. And there might be some pipeline <laughs> triggered because of that. Something. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Allison, I, I love your response about, about trust and these relationships that when you build those trusting relationships that people forgive the errors you know sometimes they're errors of action sometimes errors of inaction but they it, it lets you move past this in, in saying I, I trust allison therefore mm-hmm. you know i mean we move on and they've got your back now you make 17 of those you're like hey we got to yeah, talk yeah. about something <laughs> even if they still trust you they'll they want to talk about it being like you you really have out of body experiences sometimes <laughs> I, I think that's great. And I, and I think for our listeners who are investing, because those trusting relationships, it, it takes time and it's so mm-hmm. easy to burn it. and so hard to build it. Oh yeah, that, that's for sure. And I think the other, when you're, when you're thinking about building that trust, it's, it's two things, right? It's doing what you said you were going to do and doing that consistently. And like, and if you can do that, then people will trust you. They'll, they'll forgive the mistakes that you make because, you know, nine times out of 10, you're delivering top notch work. Right. Um, and then also when you build those relationships and not just in your department, that's the other thing that I see people do a lot. And it's a really, it's a a big hindrance on your career is if when you're so insular, like you're only focused on like relationships within marketing, within product, within engineering, whatever it may be. And I was super lucky at LiveRamp because I had started when the company was like 40 people and I was kind of like a Swiss army knife. So I was doing like everything, including like onboarding. So I was the first person you talked to when you got hired. I did like your whole um, like onboarding training schedule, all of that. And so I met everybody from across all different departments. And then I kept trying to like branch out of marketing so I could have all of those relationships across the company. Um, and then you start, when you work on like cross-functional projects, you have those relationships to lean on. Um, so I think that's super important when you're building your career. Allison, I, 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 you know, this, you know, doing what you said you're going to do and do it consistently. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is totally foundational to that. I would also add to that, to the people listening, it's like doing what's hard, yeah. but right sometimes. Mm-hmm. And when people uh-huh. see you make the the hard call, like the one that you're like, yeah. uh, you know, but it's the right thing to do. And then someone mm-hmm. goes, I know, I know in this case, Al- I know Allison's going to have my back and, and yeah. you own that. So it's like when you have those moments and they're not, you don't get them often, but when you have to like either fall on the sword mm-hmm. or do the hard thing, that's, yep. you can really build your brand. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. When you make a tough call and you know, it's like, look, we got to like, this is just going to be hard work, but it's the right thing to do. And it's the right thing for the business and et cetera. People really respect that because you're not taking the easy route and just getting something done, right? You're, you're doing something of quality. Um, and people, people want to be associated with that, right? Like if you're, if you're leading a project and you're doing what's right for the business and you do it the, and you're, even though it's hard, people want to align themselves to that as well, which makes you a great leader. Love that. Yeah. The consistency of doing what you say you will do is actually more rare than, than yes. common. And I think people recognize that and doing it in a consistent manner because it's really easy to do the right thing one time, but doing it 10 mm-hmm. times out of 10, that's where the big deal is. And uh, to your point, Mike, doing the hard things are usually the right things to do. That's why they're hard. <laughs> like eating your vegetables.
right? Like nobody wants to do that, but you have to. <laughs> That's a nice mom example. But yes, absolutely. That is that is hard to do. Or, or, or admitting when it's your admitting when it's your fault. Exactly. Being yep. totally transparent. <laughs> yep. Being vulnerable. Yep. I, I sent that yep. out to sixty thousand people. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Let's talk a little bit about. Uh, you know, you you there are, there are a lot of Silicon Valley companies out there. There's TechCrunch, there's Saster, there's a lot of publications for startups, and many times or often there are. Um, for lack of better word, there's like this like romantic stories of startups that are that couldn't be farther from the truth. You know, like there's articles that you read about startups on like a business insider or Huffington Post or TechCrunch, whatever, and they describe this journey that doesn't exist. And uh, and people who work in startups who see thinking in in the U.S. in English, you say like the sausage making, like like you know the the the, the truth behind this behind this company that you're building. Uh, many times it's so different. Like the reality is so completely different than than the stories or the or the journalists who describe it. From your experience, going through ups and downs, uh, being in the early stage of a startup to later stage, uh, what what is a fundamental truth that you have come to realize is bullshit? It's not true at all. That you you know for a fact it's like it's not it's not at all how it goes. I think it's around culture building, right? And so I think that a lot of people don't understand how to actually build a culture within their company. And, you know, I feel like when you hear about startups, they're like, oh, I'm staying because of the people, the culture, et cetera. And that's like a word that kind of gets like thrown around a lot and, and it's broad, it's ambiguous. But I think one of the things is that it just happens, right? I just think that's a fallacy. Like they, to build culture and to build that camaraderie, especially in a startup, because you're doing so much grunt work and you're doing, you know, jobs of 10 people, et cetera. It actually takes work to do that. It doesn't just happen um, overnight. And I think that's something that people really should invest in um, and, and take the time to do it right. So um, that's one thing that I always feel like people are like, oh yeah, this like culture. It's like, oh, it just like came out of thin air. And it's like, it took a lot of work and a lot of people to be bought in on that. Let, let's talk about that a little bit more, just because I could not care less about culture five, yeah. six years ago. <laughs> and now I'm obsessed about culture. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. again, being like a left hemisphere brain uh, focused person, it's, it's just, it's fascinating how the shift, you know, I used to care mm -hmm. only about product and technology and now it's important. And, but the people and the culture, like, what do you do? Uh, I think, uh, what is it? Ben Horowitz had said in this, this is a book he wrote about that. You are what you do. And mm -hmm. he was like, what you, what people do when you're not in the room is kind of like the definition of culture or at least part mm -hmm. of it. What, uh, dive deeper into it. You've, you must have seen some shitty cultures and some great cultures. What, <laughs> tell us a little bit about well, that. Well, what I would say is that, you know, uh, culture is built off like the values, right? So I think one of the things that companies should do right off the bat is like, what are our values? Like, what do we stand for? Um, what is the work that we do stand for? And when you have that kind of like those values and people align themselves to that, they're much more mission driven that, and they're going to achieve that vision that you have for the company. You know, who was really good at it. It was Orrin Hoffman. I mean, 
there was like, we had our values and everybody, like the first thing that you had, you were reading through these values, we're super transparent with it. And then there was like things that were like, um, kind of that he listed on top of that. Like we didn't have any like rules, right. There were or print or uh, policies. It was all guide. Like it was a guide. Right. And he wanted to hire people with like good judgment and there, so there's all these little things that he all like, that seems small, but like at the, at the time it was building this culture and bringing people together um, to kind of rally around these values. And so, and like one of the other, like, I love this one. It was like, you need to respond to an email in 12 hours. That was just like something we had to do. And people got called out if they did not reply to an email in 12 hours. But again, that was like the sense of urgency that he created. And like the people that were like, so, so and it just brought really driven people um, and I think that was a huge success of why LiveRamp, you know, um, the journey that it had and the growth that it had is because Orrin really instilled the, these values and, and, and did all these other like small things that contributed to that as well. Do you, uh, do you find Orrin or a founder as the main influencer or, or constituent of, of a culture? Yes, 100%. Because they're all looking to you. Like I, you know, I think then, then there's like people around, right? Um, like I said, like in the early days, I was kind I was kind of like our HR, which is terrifying to look back at now. (laughs) Um, but like, I was like a big driver of culture as well. Right. Like I'm the first person you meet. I'm the, I'm the person that's like helping you through like your onboarding and all of that. And that's a big piece of the culture. And so, you know, like one of the things that we did really early on, and now I look back on, I'm like, I cannot believe we pulled this off is we do like these huge camping trips and everything we had to do was like all together. So we wanted to do this huge camping trip with like a hundred people. And I look back on it now and I'm like, that was such a big, and Oren was there with his family and he was just like, so, so invested. And I think, so he, he really created it. And he was like, kind of like the North star. And then you have other people within the company that are kind of like the tent poles, right? Like you're, you're kind of setting it up with them, but you have to be bought into the CEO's vision. Love that. That's interesting. Awesome. Very interesting <laughs> and insightful. So different. Like uh, I definitely, I, I get what you're saying about founder setting up culture, at least initially. Um, but having those, those that you remember so many things about live ramp right now that are coming up that it seems very significant that culture there seems to have been very significant it was very very significant and i think you had a lot of people that were that you know their tenure was like i mean anika gupta that just left she was there for over 10 years um i was there for eight you know you had there's a and there's a lot of people like that that are still there that are still very very invested um and so, and I think now about like that trust radius, we have a CEO, he's very pragmatic, very data driven, and the whole company is like that. Um, and, and I think he really sets the tone and sets those values and now, and everyone's like aligned to it. Um, but again, like, I think you need your kind of your stakeholders without the, within the company as well to drive, to drive culture. Love that. Mike, what about you? What, what is that? What is that truth? What's an absolute truth for you that? that you think is, is messed up, is not true at all. Well, I, Allison, I think you crushed the response on culture. I think it, it does start with mission and it does start with, with really clearly defined values as your guide rails, as, as, as you sort of articulated. Um, I, I think that's beautifully articulated and that your, your CEO better be the cult, chief cultural <laughs> officer or your culture's gonna suck, you know, period, full stop. 
And I'm sure, you know, if you were doing the onboarding in a 40 person company, you were, you were his chief foil for implementing the culture. So it's because you, when you say it, it was so clear what was to be done. So, you know, that, that, that is really impressive. You know, Gil, I would, I, I would say that sometimes funding brings waste. So people do these scrappy things. They bootstrap, they, they hire people like Allison, who was the self-proclaimed <laughs> Swiss army knife and can do a lot, lot of stuff, but then you get funding and you know, you have different types of funding. Some of it might be angel. Some of it might be, you know, you know, venture growth, private equity, all the way on the continuum, but you, you get this funding and people are like, okay, we can spend. And then they, they, they change how they do things. They're, they're not getting that, you know, return on investment mentality when they're really pushed to scrap for dollars. And I, I, I feel that that changes companies and, and, and makes their failure rate higher. Mm -hmm. So you took the money, which means <laughs> your failure rate should go down. You have more funds, but it goes up because they change how they did things. And unfortunately, I mean, we're a wash, fortunately or unfortunately, we're a wash in capital. So they're throwing money at companies. And if you look at the venture capital models, they only need two of their 20 investments to be smashing successes. Mm -hmm. And they don't even care about the zeros. They're like, okay, just go away <laughs> and stop bothering me. I mean, in, in private equity, it's, it's the ratio is they don't want any of their investments to go to zero and they don't have many upsides. So they, they, they care a little bit more about that. But it, it, it is, I, I wanna make sure that, that, that people out there, this, this story is don't change that mm -hmm. discipline that you have on doing stuff to use, you know, it's not like, oh, now we can just hire retained recruiters to get the best and the brightest. You're not gonna always get the best and the brightest. You might <laughs> spend $270,000 and then, and then give them a big chunk of equity and, you know, give them a signing bonus or whatever else you do. But you're like, this person does not walk on water in all instances. So <laughs> I, 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 you like you sort of demand that discipline and it's important for senior management to make sure that discipline has a check in the values that we're not just going to be drunken sailors because it, it, cha it changes people, which is why, you know, kids of rich families are typically shit shows, you know, like, like, what do you do? Warren Buffett said, give your kids enough money so they can do, you know, they, they can be anyone they want, but don't give them enough money so they can do nothing. Right. And like, it, it, it's true with your company. You can't have this change in attitude. Like, all right, we could just spend. It, it really ruins companies and it's terrible. What's the, what's the saying? More money, more problems. More money, more problems. That is for sure true. It's also in the personal life. But very interesting. Uh, you know, you, you, you touched something very, like Metadata was, fortunately, I guess, based on what you just said, a very poor company. We were super poor to the extent where we had to optimize our unit economics so well, uh, just because there was no other way to either this or dying or selling to someone too early. And uh, I remember raising our Series A. We raised our Series A last year. And uh, we raised our Series A. There was a big announcement tech TechCrunch. And the first leadership meeting and the first all-hands meeting after that, you know, you're talking about uh, 
optimizing and, and doing further uh, economical optimizations. And my team is like, what the fuck? We just announced the TechCrunch Series A. Like everyone just saw the six and a half million we just raised. I was like, yeah, but you know, don't you want to make sure we'll get the next round as well? And it was such an unpopular decision to do further optimization after raising money. But that's exactly what I was afraid of. I was afraid that we're going to just be, it's going to be a shit show. We're just going to, recruiters is such a classic example, but it could be many, many other things. And uh, after we optimized, something very interesting happened that two months after raising the Series A, we got follow-on investment without asking for it from that lead investor because they saw what happened. They saw like 60 days after getting the money, we only got better in the way we spent uh, mm -hmm. money. And that was a shocker, a little bit of a shocker to them. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's very important. It's very hard to, to, to do because we live in this crazy bubble. This like startup world, especially in the Valley, somewhere, other places, it's not the same, like Europe startups. Uh, are very, very different. But in the Valley, you get money with a mandate. You should spend this money in a year and a half or two years mm -hmm. max. If you don't, you're not going to spend it in a year and a half, don't take the money. We're not going to give it to you. Uh, I know I rejected Series A investments because I refused to spend it the way the VCs wanted to. And so it's hard to do. It's one of those tough decisions that you better make. Um, and so I, th I think it's very, very interesting and controversial uh point especially for entrepreneurs well there 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 certainly are opportunities with giant total addressable markets that are changing the world and you're in a race with someone else mm -hmm. that i would change that paradigm but i think if people were really honest with themselves most companies aren't that you're not going to be like uber racing lyft you know and where one gets 90 percent market share and the other one gets 10. i i think in in many cases you're like you're trying to prove your business model you're trying to prove your unit economics. You're trying to make sure that you understand your true CACs and you know, your segmentations and change your product based on what the feedback that you get. So it's not spend and just you know, drive yourself. Because most of those companies are lawn darts. They're like, <laughs> it's just a mess. Even, well, even other, if you are, go ahead. Oh, oh I was just going to say, and the other thing is, is when you, pour money into a company, what happens if there's not fundamental like process on like how like the, the each of the departments are like functioning. What I've seen in the past is that they kind of just throw more bodies at it instead of thinking about like the process, like product is a really good, like let's just throw some bodies on it. And we have funding to do that instead of actually critically thinking about, okay, from an engineering standpoint, from a product like vision, roadmap, et cetera, like what, what are we trying to do and, and build it properly versus throwing warm bodies at problems? I, I couldn't you, agree more. You, yeah, you're just talking yeah, about you like- see that, Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, please continue. It's your point. No, I was just saying like you see it when, if the product sucks, you throw bodies to patch it in yep. the call center or customer support. And you're like, mm -hmm. you should fix the product. It's yeah. not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's a bottleneck. That, that's, that's exactly it. There's a bottleneck there that you are not aware of if you just shower it with resources. You know, more resource will just make that bottleneck disappear for a short period of time. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, again, we were poor just because I couldn't raise enough, enough money or just because whatever excuses I used. But at the end of the day, you, I, we kind of like to get to capacity where the bottlenecks are exposed and then you can put investment into those bottlenecks if you do it prematurely you will never know what those bottlenecks are oh right. you will know i guess but in a year from now or two years yeah. from now it's too late 
Yeah, exactly. It's too late. And you have all this tech debt and it's just, it's a mess. And, and what it, it actually hinders your growth in the long term. So I would say like the other thing with like funding is like, okay, what's your long, like what's, there's always a short-term gain, but what's the long, what's your long game? And I think that's another thing that you have to think about when you go for funding is, you know, you, there's stuff that you need to do now, right. To set a really strong foundation, but that foundation is needs to support your vision going forward as well. And when people aren't thinking like that, or you only have one person that's thinking like that and the rest of the company is very short-term, um, that's where you, you run into problems. Um, Allison and Mike, I just realized I have four minutes left. I sometimes have so much fun <laughs> that I forget to manage time. So it's your fault, but thank you. Um, <laughs> before we finish, if there is, if you go back 10 years or what have you, uh, as many years as you'd like, I won't call you out on your, on your age. Uh, what would be the, the one piece of most important piece of advice you'd, you would give yourself or, or our listeners that are early, earlier stage in their career, like a piece of advice that is, you know, monumental really would change, change path. Uh, pick your battles. Um, you can't spread yourself too thin. You can't try to change everything at one time. So pick your battles and think about things in like a phased approach. Um, because as soon as you spread yourself too thin and you're kind of all over the place, you really don't achieve anything. And that's something I learned really early on in my career is you try to control everything. You keep everything really tight to your chest. Um, and you're just, it, it's a recipe for failure. Do you have an example in mind that you'd like to share? Uh, no, I was just, you know, I, I'm, uh, do you guys, have you guys ever heard of Enneagram? Have you heard of this? It's like a personality. Yeah, test. the psychological test. Yes, yes, I've done that. Yeah, it's like a Myers Briggs, but like a different. So I'm in uh, like an E and a seven, which means that I'm like a control freak. Um, <laughs> I don't remember so, control freak being one of the definitions. I think you gave it a little no, bit of a personal yeah, okay, taste to it. I summarized it. I summarized it. Um, so I feel like that was something early on in my career that I was just like, I wanted to be involved in everything. I wanted to review everything. And it was just like, at some point I was doing everyone a disservice and including myself because I wasn't delegating. I wasn't setting up processes to actually scale. Um, and so, and I was trying to like, you know, uh, dealing with problems with sales, dealing with customer success, dealing with product, like, and it was just trying to take too much on and then nothing really got the attention that it needed. Hmm. How do you know how to prioritize <laughs> Uh, so a couple of things, I think what, especially in marketing, like what is going to move the needle, right? Like what is actually going to generate the pipeline that we need or the revenue, et cetera? Like, where's the money <laughs> essentially. Right. And then from there, um, the, the second thing that you would kind of look at is what are the kind of like foundational things that are going to be scalable, um, and repeatable. Right. And that's, that's what I think in, in marketing is really important. And, and people don't necessarily think of is like, if you set a really good foundation for like your brand marketing, your demand gen product marketing, and there's a lot of process there and people just know how to get shit done and, and it's all scalable. Um, I mean, that's really where you want to be. Awesome. Love that. <laughs> that is very insightful. Mike, what about you? I love, again, I love Allison's answer on scalability of, of yourself, you know, leveraging yourself. It's really important for me. It was, it was, you know, winning with and through teams. Like you can't do this yourself. You have to mm -hmm. do it with surrounding yourself with great people. And, and I think it starts with, um, you know, not 
even even if you're an individual contributor, you know, your your pre-manager, making sure that you manage up and across well. And then as you start building your team out when you're given more resources, making sure that you surround yourself with good people or train your people up so they can be good. And if they're not, you need new people. Like you don't you need mm -hmm. projects, these turnaround projects, because world class, you know production comes from world-class teams and you, 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 you just can't, you, you, you can't suffer through it. So it's like this whole engine that you build and quite literally, if you're, if you're that individual contributor, 25 years old, you know, first time you're getting a little bit of a budget, a little bit of project, it's like some of the people you work with, you're going to be working with at your third and fourth company down the road, recruiting mm -hmm. them out of your old place. Like, Work with great people. It is so much fun. Awesome. I totally agree with that. Yeah, <laughs> I completely agree. Do you want to add something, Allison, after you finish that sip? Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm trying to, I'm actually perfectly timing the beer with this podcast timing. So it's, I'm, I'm That's happy important. about that. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, hire the right people. I mean, I've, I've made some questionable hires and it hurts you so much. <laughs> Um, I won't tell who those people are, but, um, <laughs> but you I think all know you need, who you are. You all know who you are, <laughs> but I think you, you need to start, you need to make those kind of those hires that you can rely on that are, you know, going back to our point, like that are going to do what they say and do that consistently. Right. So totally agree with you. Allison, Allison <laughs> you mentioned, you mentioned Enneagram, the predictive yes. index has, has a behavioral assessment. So uh, okay. I'm, pr I'm predicting from watching you for, 55 minutes that you're a captain. So go ah, to okay. www.trypi.com slash Z, my initial. Okay. And you take five, five minute assessment. It'll give you your results and you're going to be a captain. I predict it. And he's going to share it with Mike. <laughs> yes. I'll send it back to you guys. Hey, if you don't like it, you, you just send it. I'll, I'll double delete it. No one will ever know. Um, <laughs> you tell Gil if I was right, though. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Hey, Mike and Allison, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. Cheers. You're Cheers. awesome Cheers. guest nice and very you. insightful. Thank you very much. And uh, hey, have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. you have a good one. Thank you very much. Thanks again for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed today's discussion and will tune in again. Find all of the B2B Category Creators episodes at metadata.io. And if you have any feedback, topics, or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out. 